Heavenly Father, that is our uh, invitation this morning um, to rise and bring all that we have to you, all that we are, to acknowledge you as King, as Lord, as the one who is in control, as the sovereign of our lives, and uh, to bring you both our attention and our allegiance this morning. So help us now in Jesus' name to do that well by the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks, team. And uh, thank you guys for being here this morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. It's my privilege to, to worship with you, to be able to turn to God's word with you, and to jump back into this series titled Ruin and Restoration. It's a series that we're in here the first of the year, studying through the minor prophets. And if, if you're new to us, you go, okay, why in the world is this church doing a sermon series through the minor prophets? That's kind of an obscure and random thing to do. Well, we believe, as, as Doug told us a couple weeks ago, that our job as a community of faith and us as your pastors is to make sure that we are preaching the whole counsel of God. Anytime that we decide to preach only the things that um, are dear and near to us or our own sort of hobby horses or our soap boxes, we run the risk of that kind of being the theological shape of our church. When this needs to be the theological shape of our church, his word, right? And so we're committed to moving through that. And, and also because we, we look at uh, the nation of Israel, we look at uh, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, we look at Assyria, Babylon, we look at some of these ancient Near Eastern countries, and while they are so different and so far off historically, we also recognize that they're actually dealing with a lot of the same issues that we're dealing with today. And so I think you'll find that as we go through this series, there's a lot of relevance to our present day. That brings us this morning, to the book of Obadiah. So we started first Sunday of the year, uh, Hosea, excuse me, Hosea, Joel, uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, the fourth uh, book of the 12. So the book of the 12 is another term for those minor prophets. That's what the Hebrew Bible calls them, the book of the 12. It's this obscure little book, Obadiah. It's matter of fact, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. There's a couple of books shorter in the New Testament, but it's just one chapter long. If you, if you turn... In your Bibles, you might even have a hard time finding it. In my Bible, it's literally this, like half of one page and the other part of the next. 21 short verses, the book of Obadiah. It's not very well known. I would venture to guess that this morning, by the time we're finished looking at it together, you will have experienced the best sermon on the book of Obadiah you've ever heard. <laughs> I'm pretty confident of that this morning, okay? So bear, bear with me as we jump into this, <laughs> this little known work. The, sort of the, the thesis of the book, if you step all the way back and look at it, it's a book about judgment. Okay, so buckle up. It may not be like the most positive and encouraging, but I think we're going to get somewhere. But the message of Obadiah to us this morning, and we're going to come back to this, is that God's judgment, friends, is actually a good thing. God's judgment is a good thing. Now, it might seem counterintuitive, but let's, let's look and see why that's the case. The book begins right off the gate. It just says, uh, the oracle to Obadiah. Doesn't tell us anything about him. Doesn't tell us who he is, what he's doing, what the context is. So for us to understand who, these, who this is even addressed to and what, what's going on, it's important to understand kind of the backdrop, just a little bit, of what's going on. Right? So you have the two kingdoms. Israel, that's the ten tribes. Judah, that's the two tribes. The southern kingdom. Israel's really bad. Judah's pretty bad, too. Israel gets taken off into captivity by Assyria. Judah hangs on a little longer. 
then they get taken off into captivity as well because they're wicked, they're idolatrous, they break the covenant, and God is judging Judah. So Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, they come in, and somewhere about 586, they take them off into captivity. A couple years ago, we did a series in Daniel, which focuses on the people of Israel when they're in captivity. Well, this is what's just happened. They've gotten taken off into captivity by Babylon. And then Obadiah is a prophet who is writing to the neighbors of Judah, a country called Edom. Okay? So Babylon comes in. They take Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom, off into captivity. And their neighbor, Edom, is now getting prophesied against by this prophet, Obadiah. And here's why. Because as Babylon comes in, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, they rape, pillage, destroy, do all the things that ancient Near Eastern, you know, conquering armies do, Edom stands by and watches. But not even just passively. So, so for one, they definitely don't help. But they don't passively stand by and watch. They actually engage in the destruction of. They participate in um, by, by, by pillaging and abusing and stealing and being party to the destruction of Judah. So that's the historical context of who Edom is, what they've done as Babylon takes Judah off into captivity. But it gets even more complicated or more, I guess, poignant because they're not just a neighboring nation. They're actually a half-brother. So Edom are the children of Esau. In your Bibles, if you're taking notes or whatever else, make a note. If you, if you read Genesis chapters 24 and following, you'll see where, obviously, Abraham and Sarah, they have Isaac, their son. Isaac marries a gal named Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah, right? Beautiful love story. And they have twins, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau have a fractured and complicated relationship. It's, it's really sad. Jacob, obviously, is God's chosen one, and, and Esau is angry, and he's jealous, and he uh, hates his brother. Now, there's sort of a little bit of reconciliation that takes place later, but not really. But they're half-brothers, or they're brothers, and they, they wind up having these two nations, nation of Jacob, nation of Esau. We're just saying, oh God, let us be a people that seek your face, O God of Jacob. That's what that's referencing. Jacob, of course, becomes Israel, has the 12 tribes, and we go on from there. Esau is his brother, and Esau has the nation of Edom. So not only does Edom stand by, not only do they participate in the destruction of, uh, of Judah, but they are actually brothers. Like, they should be coming to their rescue on some, on some level, and they are not. So we see God's judgment has been pronounced on Judah. They've been taken into captivity. And now, here we get to uh, Obadiah, verse 1. We see God's uh, judgment being pronounced on Edom. Okay, so Obadiah, verses 1 through 14. If you've got your Bibles with you, turn there. Uh, if, if not, the words will be on the screen as well. This is Obadiah, verses, beginning in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, 
how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? But how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to, to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you, and you have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Verse 10. Because of the violence that you have done to your brother, Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners emptied his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin, and do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. And do not hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. Friends, as sort of uncomfortable and uncommon as it may be, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we see a couple of things. We see, first of all, in verse 3, that Edom was proud. They were characterized by their arrogance. They were aloof. They thought that they were superior to their younger brother nation of Judah. Right? Verse 3, if you, if you wanted to highlight that, says, because of the pride of your heart has deceived you. And then it goes on in verse 4, and we see echoes almost of what the prophet's writing, echoes of Isaiah chapter 14, where it talks about Lucifer, talks about Satan, who says, I will ascend into the heavens and be like God. This is the way that, the, that Obadiah is talking about Edom. And we know that pride is, in fact, the first affront to who God is, to say that God is, in fact, not my helper. Right? This idea of pride being that way. They thought that they were superior to the nations around them. So in that way, I, would just, I guess I would just pause and say, let's take a, take a breath and go, let's look at our current environment. Let's look at our current worldview and cultural situation. Does this seem familiar? Can we identify it all with Edom? I think we can. The next thing that Edom is being specifically judged for is their violence. They were a violent nation. If you remember Esau, he was a man who was characterized. He was a hunter. He was strong. He, he was, you remember this fun story about how Jacob dresses up like him and puts animal furs all over his arms, right? So he's sort of like this manly man, but it has been caricaturized to become a man of violence. And not just generically so, but particularly barbaric and cruel to those who are defenseless and helpless, I'm not sure if you've seen the, uh, the shows. I wouldn't recommend them, certainly not from the pulpit. If you've seen the shows, Game of Thrones. But if you maybe read the books, there's a character in that series of novels called Gregor Clegane, The Mountain That Rides. And he is, I mean, the whole, the whole series just glorifies violence and power, right? So in that way, it's antithetical to the kingdom of God. 
but it's well written. And this character is violent beyond violent. He's, he's evil and he's cruel and he gets sadistic joy out of the torture and the um, bar- barbaric behavior that he engages in. And, and that's probably a good picture for us of Edom, the people of Esau. We'll see more about that shortly. The Bible tells us some specifics about the kinds of stuff they were engaged in. But because of these things, because of their pride, because of their violence, and because of the fact that they take joy in the destruction of their brother, God's judgment is coming upon them. And it will be swift and it will be without delay. We might be thinking, okay, that's cool. Some great historical information about what God did to this little nation back in the Middle East a couple thousand years ago, but what's the relevance here? Well, that judgment is also coming upon all nations, Obadiah tells us. See, God is using Edom and the judgment on their sin as, yes, a way to put right what's been wrong, but it's all, he's also using it as a metaphor to tell us what's coming about the coming judgment on all nations. Look in Obadiah again in verse 15 and following. Verse 15 says, For the day of the Lord is near upon who? All the nations. Right? Highlight that. <laughs> for as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually, and they shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they have never So God's judgment, friends, is coming on Edom. But Edom is a picture of God's judgment coming on all nations. And we know this because Edom, even as a name, there's a literary allusion. This is kind of cool. Not going to dig in super deep. But Edom is a literary allusion to Adam. In the Hebrew language, you'll see that we actually have, and you've got some Hebrew letters up there, the same consonants used to spell the words Edom. And we bring that directly into the English language, it's transliterated from the Hebrew, and Adam, which means man or representative of humanity. So God's judgment on Edom is in fact a picture of God's judgment that is coming on all humanity. God's judgment that is prepared. And why is that judgment prepared? Why is it that God is bringing judgment on humanity? Friends, it's because of sin. It's because God is holy, and he cannot, because he must be true to himself, he cannot tolerate sin. Look with me, if you would, turn in in the New Testament to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Again, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, or words will be on the screens as well. Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together and they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. 
They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And listen, that the whole world may be held accountable to God. Friends, Romans says we're all guilty. We can look at Edom and we can go, wow, they're terrible. But actually, that's a picture of us, a picture of all humanity. Sin is the pervasive reality of our broken, fallen condition. And because of that, because of that, we are now separated from God. We're not going to go there, turn there, but Isaiah chapter 59, 1 and 2 says, because of our transgressions, we've been separated. There is a break a break in fellowship. Pretty hopeless, in fact, and pretty bleak. Um, I think we need to let ourselves sit with that for a second. Thankfully, God doesn't leave us there. That's not the end of the story, right? The name of our series is Ruin and Restoration. So, we're going to move on from this place, but I don't think we should hurry past it. Because God's word of judgment is, is a word of judgment on our own sinful condition. And the beauty of grace is only fully appreciated when we understand the depravity and the depths of our own sin. So as we move forward from that, though, Looking, continuing to read in Obadiah, we see that God then moves and he gives us some words of restoration. So words of judgment, very serious. Moving on, words of restoration. We know that there will be the restoration of Israel. So look in Obadiah verses 19 through 21. He says, those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host, of the people of Israel, shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So there's hope. There's hope for the, for, the, for the nation of Israel. There's hope for the remnant. Restoration is coming. God has a whole set of promises. He's keeping his covenant to those people who he is punishing and, and disciplining in love who are currently in exile. They're going to be brought back. Shall possess, shall possess, shall possess, shall possess. That verse, those verses just said. Because of God's promise to Abram back in Genesis, we know that that the, the nation of Israel, their identity is just inexorably linked with their land, right? This idea that they are going to receive, they shall possess their land. It's a picture of full restoration to the people of Israel. Praise God. Praise God. So what about the restoration of Edom? Okay, so judgment on Israel and Judah, restoration of Israel. Judgment on Edom, let's look at the restoration of Edom. 
Look in Obadiah verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau stubble. And they, that's Jacob and Joseph, shall burn them, that's Esau, and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Well, wait a second, Lord. Hold on. (laughs) No second chance? No restoration for Esau? That's not very nice. That's certainly not very positive and encouraging. What's the deal? Hebrews 9 tells us, friends, that it is appointed to man once to die, and then comes the judgment. There is a point at which, I should say beyond which, there is no second chance. And God teaches us this lesson severely with Edom. You see, Edom is synonymous with sin and evil. Psalm chapter 137, verses 7 through 9, the psalmist tells us that when Babylon was coming in and taking the men off into exile and the helpless women and children were left behind, Edom is coming in and smashing the babies' heads against the rocks. Friends, God will not sit idly by and let that happen. There's brokenness in this world that runs so deep that everything in us as believers says, no, stop. It must stop. And God says, it will. I will put all things right. I will make all things good again. And in order to do that, friends, he has to bring judgment on evil. And in that way, judgment is a good thing. Now, if you look a little further in Romans chapter 9, which we're not going to spend a ton of time there, if you want to dialogue about this, I'd love to grab a cup of coffee with you or shoot me an email. We can, we can chat about it. My email is doug at pepsi.org. <laughs> You'll find me at FICA. Romans chapter 9 messes with me, guys. I'll be honest. I am about as reformed as it comes here at Pepsi. I love to celebrate the, the sovereignty and the freedom of God. But Romans 9 messes with me, right? Romans 9 says, But Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. You know, Doug tells a story about a professor he had in seminary who says, Well, it didn't really mean hated. It it meant less loved, right? Jacob I loved and Esau I less loved. And then you read about what God does to Esau and it's like, well, hated or less loved doesn't really matter. It doesn't go well for Esau, right? Like the reality of it is that the judgment that's coming upon Esau and Edom is final and it's ultimate. But God in his freedom chooses to love us and his desire is a kingdom that is characterized by goodness and beauty and righteousness, all of the things that flow out of his person and character and nature. And that is what he is in the process of ultimately restoring, right? So he restores Israel. He doesn't restore Edom. 
but he is restoring creation. And we have a picture for that painted for us at the end of Revelation. Again, we're not going to read it all, but Revelation chapters 20 and 21 give us this beautiful picture of what God's original intent was, a creation that is teeming with life and beauty and joy and vitality, free of sin, free of pain, free of tears, free of evil. It's like King Richard the Lionhearted returning home and banishing that traitor Prince John who's wrongfully sitting on his throne and pretending to wear his crown that doesn't quite fit on his head. We're given that beautiful picture. And the reason that he's able to do that as he pronounces judgment on Edom is that he pronounces judgment on sin at the cross. See, as he judges Edom, he looks forward to judging all of sin and he takes ultimately that punishment for us. And so there's a restoration not just of all creation but of fellowship. So there's that piece in, in Isaiah where because of our sin, we have had fellowship broken because of our transgressions. It has been broken. Now there is restoration ultimately of fellowship with God because of what accomplished on the cross. If you look in Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes, For in him, that's Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by what? The blood of his cross. By making peace through the blood of his cross. Friends, he is reconciling us to fellowship through Christ. And in so doing, then he changes our identity and he gives us a mission. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says... All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That's what we just read. And he gave us, us, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, thanks be to God, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Friends, ours is the task of proclaiming the victory of God, the coming king, the end of the story, and he's entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation to go out and share with one another by all means possible and trusting the, the work of the Holy Spirit to accomplish it, the reality that Christ is reconciling all things to himself. Okay. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Our kids in the lobby, they're going to come on in. But I want you to now think, go back to this little book of Obadiah, 21 short verses nestled in the Old Testament, all about judgment. And remember that God's judgment is a good thing. Because as we experience the world, we know that it is not right let me just offer this to you just as an apologetic method. When you share, when you go out, as he's entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation, when you go out to talk to people about this reconciliation, here's a great place to start. Hey, have you noticed things aren't great? Have you noticed something feels wrong with the world? 
that is something that is pretty much universally accepted. Now, can I share with you what God has done about it? Can I share with you what God longs to do in and with you about it? There's a poem by um, songwriter and poet Andrew Peterson called Rise Up. And I'd like to finish our time just using his words that paint this beautiful picture for us um, of a day that is coming and of a king who will return. As we sang to start the, uh, right, before the, right before the sermon, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. This reality of his kingship. So this, this poem is called Rise Up. He writes, Every stone that makes you stumble and cuts you when you fall, every serpent here that strikes your heel to curse you when you crawl, the king of love will one day crush them all. And every sad seduction and every clever lie, every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, the king of love will break them by and by. And you will rise up in the end. You will rise up in the end. I know the night is cruel, but the day is coming soon when you will rise up in the end. If a thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not the father see this? Would not his anger burn? Would not he repay the tyrant in the day of his return? Await, await the day of his return. Because he will rise up in the end. He will rise up in the end. I know you need a savior. He is patient in his anger. But he will rise up in the end. And finally, and when the stars come crashing to the sea, when the high and mighty fall down on their knee, we'll see the sun descending in the sky. The chains of death will fall around your feet and you will rise up in the end. You will rise up in the end. Oh, I know you will. Friends, let's pray together. Lord, we are awaiting that day. A day when you shall put right all that we experience to be currently wrong. Thank you for your judgment, as crazy as that sounds. Because, Lord, we can't stand idly by and just accept the brokenness and the sin that we are just so surrounded with. But nor do you call us to lash out and take matters into our own hands and try to right it in our own strength. No, Lord, you've done that work. You've conquered sin and death. You've inaugurated your kingdom, and you are coming back, we hear echoes of your triumphant return. And that imposter king sitting on the throne, he's, he's getting nervous. So even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, let's stand and sing our closing song.